Good morning. My name is Susanna Ford, and this morning we'll have two readings, one from Genesis in the Old Testament and then one from Romans in the New Testament. We'll start with Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. You can find it on page 2 in your pew Bible. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. It's found on page 939 in your pew Bible. Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what we for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst, among themselves, because they exchanged the truth, for God, or for the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're good. It was my fault. I fixed it. Or actually, I didn't fix it. Tanner fixed it. It was my fault. 
Hey, uh, welcome. Hey, I realize it's a holiday weekend, and if you're brand new with us, uh, if your family brought you here, you might be going like, what are we doing? Both to hear this many passages read, but also if you're paying attention to the passage as it's read, you're hearing some topics and themes that maybe you'd rather not talk about on a holiday weekend. Uh, can I just encourage you, like, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm thankful that you're in the room. And I think even though maybe uh, it's a topic that we're uncomfortable to know how to talk about, it's one that all of us are wrestling with. It's one we're all thinking about when it comes to gender and sexuality. And we don't just think about it in terms of the culture, we think about it in terms of our own story. One of the things I'm, I'm loving about uh, this little four-week series, and one of the things that I find incredibly challenging, is to speak to a room that's diverse with different backgrounds and stories and experiences. So a cup of coffee with just you, hearing your story and what your uh, thoughts are, how you understand the scriptures, what your um, thoughts are about Jesus, where you've experienced the church in the past. Like that's, that's a beautiful, that's still challenging, it's meaningful, but it's a little bit easier because it's just kind of one story. And then you come into a room like this and then there's like more coffee than we can pass around in these situations to hear all the different stories. And so as I pray for you throughout the week, I'm, I'm mindful of the different stories in the room. So I know that there are many of us who this again is not a theoretical topic or it's not a cultural topic, it's, it's your personal story. You have questions about your own gender, your own sexuality, your own identity, what it means for you, for God, for your relationships, how you think about your story, how you make sense of the things that have happened to you, how you think even about your future. Like that's, that's not theoretical. And there are those of you, maybe you would say, I'm not sure I'm asking those questions for me, but I've got people that I love, people that are in my family, people that I work with, people in my neighborhood, and, and they have a different background or different set of hurts or different desires or they have different ideas than I have. And so I'm trying to figure out how to have conversations that don't make me sound like um, I'm a bigot or homophobic or transphobic or that I just want to quote Bible verses at them. I, I want to really love and care for them and I don't really know how to do that. So, so some of you, it's a very personal story because it connects to those who are in your life. And then for some of you, it feels maybe like out there in the culture and community, but there's still a, a fear there. You're wondering where are we heading as, as a people? You're wondering about our church. You're wondering about our society. You have questions about where does God's word fit into kind of the larger cultural narrative. So, so none of us are kind of immune to this. It's one of those topics that's applicable for everyone, even if you encounter it in different ways. So I say all that because uh, I want to acknowledge the limitations of a four-week um, sermon series on this topic and then invite you just to kind of engage more deeply. So we produce this little reading guide. We're trying to do these for most of our sermons. Um, it's a, a chance for you just to engage during the week. If I'm acknowledging this is probably not enough to answer all your questions, uh, this little reading guide just puts some passages in front of you for you to engage with during the week. Uh, it'll help you kind of put your mind around how does the Bible talk about these things, both in hopeful terms um, and, and in clear terms? What's it calling us to? What's it prohibiting? How do we think about Jesus fitting in the middle of that? So those are in this reading guide. And the back of it has a number of resources. Then um, we try to just pick a number of resources that might fit some of those different stories. So there's, there's resources there for parents. There's those who are actively struggling with their own um, story, with their own sexuality. There's people who are wondering, what does the Bible say just in general? How do I encounter a God? who speaks about these things that are different than the culture says. You'll hear stories of people who, who they've kind of walked through their own journey where they were in one space with an orientation, maybe towards Sanchez Attracted, or they struggled with gender dysphoria, and God came into their world and healed and helped. And those aren't simple stories, but they're, they're true stories. And so you've got some of those resources. You have big fat ones. You have little skinny ones. Uh, you have lots of different resources out there. That shelf is a great, great place for you to thumb through them in the back of this reading guide just has some of those listed. So I want to affirm those to you. And maybe if you would read one of those in the next couple of months, it would help us as a community just kind of move towards truth and help and compassion and maybe have a more robust conversation. And then there's promised resources on this uh, QR code here. And I think if you went to it now, it says, come back next week for more resources, which is like that sign at restaurants that say like, free steak tomorrow. And then you come back tomorrow and the sign says, free steak tomorrow. I think last week it said, come back next week for more resources. And so I'm committing to you to actually post some of those. Uh, the deeper I get in uh, praying for you, studying God's word, reading, um, the more excited I am and thankful, but it is a little bit dizzying to think about what would you find helpful. And I don't want to just 
throw 50 YouTube videos up there kind of an uncurated way, but, but maybe that's the most helpful. I don't know. So I'll, I will put some things on there this week. I'm supposed to say Lord willing, Lord willing, unless next week it says come back next week for free steak and resources. Uh, I think, though, you'll find some on there. And what I'm trying to do is just help, just give you some um, conversation pointers, some ways to engage the Scriptures, because it is, if nothing else, important and somewhat confusing. So, so with that, let me just ask you to pray with me as we dive into what is week two of this series. Last week we started with uh, just the design of God, just trying to go back to the origin story of how we got here. If we can't answer all the questions that you have in simplistic kind of sound bites, at least we can go back and anchor your questions to something deeper, something fuller, something more meaningful, something that, that has some, some longevity to it. So that's kind of been our perspective. So we tried to go back last week uh, to design. This week we're going to talk about distortions, both from Genesis 3 and Romans 1. So I want to just ask for you to bring your questions to the Lord. Uh, I use the word distortions to kind of think about places where we're confused or where we have questions and maybe where there's things where we've, we've swallowed or absorbed something that wasn't quite accurate, that had some element of truth to it, but maybe it wasn't fully true and it's become part of how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see other people. And so I want to try to just poke at that a little bit in a way to maybe unravel some of the lies and distortions and get you on the road to asking what does God actually say? about these things for us. So, so would you bow your head with me for just a moment? Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to just invite you to pray. And um, maybe would you even open up your hands kind of in your lap, maybe in just a real subtle way to, to suggest, hey, God, would you help? Would you speak like a, a posture even of openness? Again, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to ask God to help you and speak to you. Let me just give you one second in silence to ask God to speak to your specific questions. And then I'll pray I'll pray over us. So, so just bring your, bring your questions and then I'll pray. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, thank you for hearing my friends' prayers. Uh, you know what's on their heart. You know where their mind is at. You know what their stories have been telling them. Uh, would you speak to them now, this morning? We acknowledge the, the limitation of the time we have, but your word is not limited. Uh, your word is powerful. It um, brings life. It shows us what is true. It nourishes us. So would you use your word to help us. And I pray for a momentum past these next few minutes into the week that we would keep wrestling with where you are, what you've said, and, and what we need to hear. So, so would you answer their prayers, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, yeah, I was trying to think about how to jump into this, and I thought about just where we've been the last couple of years. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us that we have some questions or suspicion about how we know what is true. Do you remember the days where you were getting like news reports and you were getting news flashes and maybe you turned to a different channel and it would be like the opposite kind of news and if you fell down the wrong rabbit hole on YouTube, you went down to some crazy conspiracy theories and this was like an alien virus that had come down from outer space. Like there's people that believe that. You've got people have all over the board of kind of explaining and talking about why. And so there were things even like the government saying, don't, don't worry about masks right now. They're not that effective because... We found out later we were trying to make sure we didn't have a shortage of masks in the medical field. And then later it was like, oh man, everybody's got to wear masks right now. And so it went from no big deal to now you're mandated to wear them. And so if you're paying attention, you just go like, wait, which one of these is actually true? And you could find comical versions of that and you could find not so comical versions of that. I think we probably have been suspicious for quite a while, but the pandemic brought this big question about how do you know what's true? And, and how do you know what authority is speaking like on behalf of my good. And doesn't everybody have a bias? And doesn't everybody have some sort of angle that they're after? And so these two competing ideas, how can they both be true? So we absorb that. It's not just in the water of our culture. And I think it affects how you think about people standing in spaces like this. 
Saying this is what God, God's word says this. And you might be going, eh, maybe. Maybe it's your opinion or your tradition or your background, but you've got a bias or probably an agenda. And then maybe there's another way of seeing this. So can I flip the channel to somewhere else and find the opposite view? I think it's just part of how we, how we see things. And even like in mundane places, like I was trying to buy a pickleball paddle and I went to read the reviews on Amazon and I got like paralyzed going, I don't know which one of these are like paid endorsements which of these can I actually trust? I mean, don't you just have like with bots and AI and all kinds of things around us, questions generally about how do I know what is true? Okay, if that's the culture that we live in, I think a solution is to go way back, to go not just current trends and ideas and biases, but, but to go way back to the beginning. And again, it's a, it is a perspective from the scriptures, which I realize I want to acknowledge, not every culture and tradition starts with the scriptures that the Jews and the Christians hold dear. But, but you see in these pages an explanation of how we got here. And so rather than just quoting cultural uh, pundits or pull you into YouTube videos alone, I want to take us back to something that has some grit and some staying power to help explain how we got to where we are. And if we're in a culture where we question authority, then, then we're left to like figure out what's true on our own. And so our experience becomes a kind of authority. Our feelings and desires become a kind of authority. Our own stories become a kind of authority. And even somebody's posture or winsomeness or likability, but I don't like his tone, they would say. You're like, what? I don't even know what that means. What do you mean you don't like his... His tone, it's a, it's a book, and what do you mean you don't like his tone? Is this true or is it not true? So even someone's like winsomeness, someone's likability, my likability, your, your parents' likability, your coworkers' likability actually shapes how you engage what you think might actually be true. And so I say that because when it comes to questions about like, does God love me and is he trustworthy, his likability to you is actually kind of a starting place. I just want to acknowledge that. How you think about God shapes what you think about His Word and what He's said. And if you see Him a certain way, it might actually bend you or bias you away from His instruction. If you see Him as rigid, as unloving, as unreasonable, as untrustworthy, or, or as ancient, as outdated. If that's where you start with God, then it actually puts you in kind of a shaky place when it comes to engaging His Word. I'm saying all that just to invite you to be honest about where you're starting. And that is exactly the question about who God is and is He trustworthy that Genesis 3 explores for us. Genesis 1 and 2 is the origin story of God designing things beautifully, perfectly, in ways that were flourishing, ways that were for our good. Everyone who reads Genesis 1 and 2 takes a deep breath and goes, man, that would be nice. And then chapter 3 opens up and the bottom falls out real fast and it falls out around the idea of is God good is he trustworthy that's the baseline of what's going on with these different distortions Genesis 3 is a rival story about how we got to where we are and how we should think about going forward and I think Paul had Genesis 3 in his mind when he wrote Romans 1 so the reason why I had both those passages read Partly is because I'm pretty overwhelmed with like all the things I want to say and I realize I can't say all of them. So at least if you can have them read over you, that's at least something. Full disclosure, long passage, at least get some truth in you if I fall apart up here. At least you heard those words. So that's one reason. But the other one is the overlap and the parallel between the two. Did you hear like both talk about creation, but both talk about suppression of truth? But both talked about like the impact of believing something about God that wasn't true and how, how it results in everything falling apart. And both actually offer hope. Both offer some sort of solution. So here's the outline I want to use to walk through this. I want to talk about the source of the distortions. I want to talk about the substance of the distortions. And I want to talk about solutions to the distortions. So, so the source of the distortion, the substance of the distortion, and the solution to the distortion. So, so Genesis chapter 3, it's on page 2 if you're in that pew Bible. And I would really love it if you would open up to the scriptures. I'm going to go back and forth. I'd love for you to see these words in front of you. But let's talk first about the source of the distortion. Everything is amazing in chapter 2. 
And then chapter 3 opens up. Look with me in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The question is, why did everything fall apart? Where did everything go wrong? And we start with a source for the distortion, and it is a supernatural being, which that I've lost some of you at that point. This is the way the Bible talks. There's a God that you can't see and touch. There's a spiritual world that you can't see and touch, and there are evil forces in that world. And it says here, in the middle of the garden, there was this voice, this serpent, and we'll find out later in Scripture that, that that serpent is defined and described as the devil, the evil one, Satan himself, the liar, the accuser, or how he is called. He is the source of the distortion. It wasn't that God created things in kind of this fallen and broken way. It wasn't that evolution unraveled it. It wasn't that there was a lie that happened early in the garden. There was a real spiritual force that talked to God's people and said, God is not trustworthy so we have to acknowledge first we don't come at this whole thing neutral there's a real enemy the scripture says wants to steal kill and destroy the the ideas and the things we're wrestling with they're not neutral ideas we'll talk about idol worship in a moment but there are rival stories about what would save you and rescue you and make you whole and there is a supernatural being that wants to lie to you and we talked for a second in our prayer time just about the world, the flesh, and the devil. We get those categories from a passage like Ephesians chapter 2. It's explaining kind of a commentary on where we are. Here's what Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says. If you're taking notes, just write that reference down and listen to this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you used to once walk, following the course of the world. So you're in the world around you and you're following the path or the rhythms or the perspective of the world. And following the prince of the power of the air, that's the serpent, that's the evil one, that's the supernatural enemy of God who wants to still kill and destroy. So you're following the course of the world, and you're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, put us all in the same boat, all of us have needs, all of us are in spaces where we've heard those lies, and we've lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires in the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So just an encouraging word from Ephesians chapter 2 to hear actually it's more than just ideas we're wrestling. It's not just talking about philosophers from the 1900s. We're not just talking about the Enlightenment. We're not talking about ideas that kind of came out casually or came out through empirical study. We're talking about distortions that came from a source that was evil. And the distortion had a lot to do with the nature and character of God. But I want you just to wrap your mind around this idea. If there is a devil and he lies to you, he's been doing that for millennium. So you live in a world that is shaped by those lies. You just have absorbed and breathed the air. I think history shows there's something amiss. You just look back throughout even your like junior high history book and go, dang, this is not a safe place. This is not a healthy place. This is not a flourishing place. Something went wrong. And the Bible's explanation of what went wrong is the world has listened to those lies and they've been crafted and manipulated and morphed and they have mutated in ways that it now is just the socially acceptable world we live in has this baseline suspicion about who God is and what he did back in the garden. And your flesh, your being, your persona, who you are, how you see the world was born into that fallen and broken world and you pulled out ideas, you were harmed, you had people tell you a story, your flesh isn't neutral either, you were both born and made who you are. There, there's a design that's been distorted and you have absorbed that in your flesh, in the way you feel, in your desires. We have these, um, in our flesh, Ephesians says, we're enemies of God. We're bent away from him. So, so the source of these distortions, and you could talk about the devil and the world and the flesh, come from supernatural places. It's really important that you understand we're not just dealing with neutral ideas, wondering which philosophy is superior to other philosophies. You're dealing with rival origin stories about who is good, what this world is about, and what will lead to flourishing. So, so we just need to name verse 1 of chapter 3, 
that there is a source of a liar. Okay, so what is the lie? Let's talk about the substance of the distortion, kind of the DNA. If he's a liar, if he's one who deceives, if he's crafty, it says, then what does he actually lie about? The first thing is he lies and makes you question if God's word can be trusted. Look in verse uh, in verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, uh, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Did God actually say? Did he really mean that? I mean, come on, like, think about it for a moment. Did he really say that there was a tree that you couldn't eat from? Stop for a second, and as we walk through these, I want you to think about like the lies you believe or the distortions, or maybe let's put it more positively, the, the questions you have or the suspicion you have or, or the un, unstated ideas that you're still wrestling with. But would you maybe uh, think through how they sound in your head? In this moment, the question was, did God really say that you couldn't eat from this certain tree in the garden? Maybe it sounds to you like, do you really believe in a God that wouldn't want people to be in a relationship if they love each other? Do you really believe in a God who would allow somebody to have desires that they couldn't have fulfilled? Do you really believe in a God who has rules that were written so many thousands of years ago, way before we understood things like orientation, all they had was behavior? Do you really believe those things are still binding for today? The way even the evil one asked the question is not just like a neutral question. Did, did he actually say that? Are you, are you sure? I mean, hasn't times changed? Hasn't, haven't we learned more about humanity? Aren't there other things for us to consider? The, the baseline distortion starts with a question of, can God actually be trusted? Can his word be understood for one? Can you really wrap your mind around what these ancient words mean? Aren't there different definitions? Aren't there scholars that debate all these words, those would all be forms of this baseline question of, can God's word actually be trusted? I think for some of you, that's like the primary place you wrestle. You wonder, can you even know about this book? And you've tried, maybe you've heard competing ideas. People have stood in places like this and have told you, thus saith the Lord, and then they blew it. They fell. They transgressed. They proved to not be faithful. They harm people. They abuse their power. They took advantage of people. They actually sinned sexually the way they told you not to, and it made you question all kinds of things about God's Word. So, so that's the first question. Can God's Word be trusted? Secondly, can God's warnings be discarded? God says, actually, if you eat of this tree, you will die in chapter 2, verse 17. So the woman says to the serpent, we can eat of the fruit of the garden, but God did say there's this one tree that we can't eat from, nor should we actually touch it, or we'll die. That's verse 3. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, just think about it for a second. It's fruit. That's crazy. If you were to eat of this fruit and die, doesn't that feel kind of extreme? The second distortion is that God's warnings can be discarded. In Romans, it will talk about the wrath of God that's coming because of our rebellion. And one of the evil one's deceptions and distortions is to mute that voice and say, oh, no, 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 no. Those warnings aren't real. They can be discarded. You surely won't die. I mean, that's pretty extreme for a little bit of fruit. I mean, what kind of an insecure deity would have that kind of a rule? I mean, what kind of like helicopter overbearing parent does that sort of thing? You could read into a text like this. And so maybe that's a place where you struggle. The warnings of eternity, the, the wrath of God, the punishment for sin might just feel way too extreme for you. I want you to see they started somewhere. God who's loving and good and gracious who put us in the garden, put boundaries in place and warned us what it meant to choose a rival story to define ourselves. It's not just an ideological idea. The scriptures call it worship. Romans 1 will call it idol worship. It's something that grips your soul, that gives affection, that has power over you, it says. And those things, when you choose anything other than God, there are massive consequences in this life and in the next. But there is a baseline question of, can God's warnings be discarded? And then it goes to God's character. Not just His word and His warnings, but His character. 
Listen to this in verse 5. This crafty evil one says, here's the deal. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes are going to be opened. Hey, that sounds awesome. They're limited. There's stuff they don't know. He says, hey, God, God actually knows if you were to eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. In that space, it's the character of God that gets questioned saying, hey, God put this boundary in place for you because he doesn't want you to thrive. He doesn't want you to be fully happy. He wants to control you. And he knows if you were to take this fruit, then your eyes will be open and you'll see things the way God sees them. You won't have to be bound simply to your creatureliness. You can be more like the creator. And God doesn't want you to have that. It's a question of his character. So when you think about the boundaries of God's word, you think about where he has put limitations on your behavior, your beliefs, your desires, your actions. Isn't there a kind of sub-question that you have of like, what's the big deal for one, and why doesn't God want me to have this? Why wouldn't God want me to be happy? Why, why would God want somebody to be alone their whole life? Why would somebody let somebody stay in a space where they felt disconnected from their body and they could do something about that, but God says they shouldn't do something about that? Isn't that make him out of touch, unkind, unloving, maybe insecure? He's demanding, he's controlling. There's things about God that actually aren't noble and good leading to flourishing. There's a substance of the distortion that has a question about God's character. And in the middle of the night, when you're faced with decisions, if you question his word, you've minimized his warnings, and you're not sure he's good, choice becomes really easy. I mean, you'll pull away from what he says would lead to flourishing because his character can't be trusted. That's the next space that we see. And tied to that again, I'll just say it out loud, there's a lie here that you shouldn't have limits, that you shouldn't be a creature, that it's not fair or right for you to not be able to see things the way God sees them. So the way he says, hey, you, you, not only will you not die, but you're going to be God-like. I mean, okay, if we struggle with truth and knowing what's true, wouldn't it be amazing to know good and evil? Wouldn't it be great if you were the omniscient one? You were the one who knew and could unravel and unpack all the stuff. You could see the future and you knew what actually was truly true. And there's places that God's designed us to be receiving beings, trusting his word for us, that the evil one distorts and says hey, that he has limits on you is another example of how he's not good. And then I'll just maybe name this. There's a, a lie here or a, a substance of the distortion that your desires must be given into. It says in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband and he also ate. There's a lie in this. There's a distortion in this that if you desire it, you should have it. That your desire is actually the most important thing about you. And one of the distortions about that is that your desire now is not leading to action, it's leading to identity. What a crushing thing to say to somebody, you're defined by your desires. Now it sounds kind of winsome or wonderful to talk about a gender identity or to talk about how we see ourselves or the ability to kind of say what's true about us. But if you think through it all the way to the end, to have to define yourself is a crushing reality. And the logic even of the where we are in the world where your desires, we know they change, is even a, a more crushing reality. If you have to define yourself through your desires, then what happens when your desires change? which almost every psychologist, sociologist, scientist would tell us that is exactly what happens throughout someone's life. So now you have not just fluid desires, but a fluid identity, which read into that unstable, always shifting, never fully settled, never able to be at home with who you are and your story. So it sounds like this amazing idea that you could define yourself and make yourself anything you want, which read into that the American story. I mean, that's like every Disney movie. I mean, that's every parent saying to their child, hey, you can be whatever you want whenever you grow up. Like those things sound really amazing until you apply their logical end to the idea that you have to, because you can, define your own 
identity. There's a lie and a distortion in this thing that your desires are the real authority. They are what you should give in to. They are what you should actually follow. Okay, if that's the way it's gone so far, the question is, well, does it work? Does it lead to life? Right? This is a, an origin story about flourishing. And so, hey, these rules are restricted. This God is, is kind of uptight. He's insecure. He's myopic. He's holding out on you. There actually aren't any consequences. Your desire is king. So what happens when we go down that road? Look in verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Well, if it stopped right there, like that would sound like a win. That's what he said was going to happen. That's actually what God says was going to happen. There's a half-truth baked into almost every lie and every distortion. The reason why they're so compelling, the reason why we believe them is because part of them are true. So the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, that seems super bizarre, unless you were here last week in the last verse of chapter 2. says, husband and wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So for the first thing to happen... When they go down this enlightened path, hearing these ideas about who God is and his word, if the first thing that happens is shame, a desire to cover, that they see themselves, they see themselves clearly and what they feel is not enlightenment and, and, and joy and some sort of empowerment, they feel shame. I feel shame. You feel shame. We've been living into this story for so long. The effects of this distortion just feel normal. We just accept that normal is kind of part of the way shame functions in our world. But, but we actually have to see here it's something that was alien to God's original design and creation. And it's the result of these distorted desires. Well, it doesn't stop there. It actually gets worse in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of God. So you used to have this communion with God. They were one with each other and one with God. And now, far from kind of having a, a more invigorated understanding of themselves and having this omniscient engagement with the world around them that would elevate them, it actually pushes them away from God. So they hide themselves from the Lord among the trees in the garden. But Lord God called out to them and said, Where are you? And I love Jackie Hill Perry says, When God asks questions, in the Bible, it's always for our benefit, not his. He's not like wondering where they are. He's asking them, hey, do you know where you are? Do you have a sense of what's going on? Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden, and I was afraid. So you have shame, you have hiding, you have fear. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God says again, hey, who told you? You were naked. Again, the question's not for God, it's for them. Because here's the amazing thing. This evil one who lies to us, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, doesn't have our best interest in mind. What he'll often do is tempt you with what you're entitled to. Then as soon as you take it, he's the one that says, how dare you? No one would ever love you if they find out about that. So he first says, you deserve this. You're entitled to this. This would be good and flourishing. You take of the fruit, whatever it might be. And then immediately you feel this sense of shame. And you've got to hide that sense of shame. And some of you guys have been hiding for decades. You've heard the voice of shame for a long time, and you've been hiding for a really, really, really long time. Who told you you were naked? The very one who said, if you go out this enlightened path, you'll actually lead to a different kind of flourishing than this stingy, uptight, out-of-date God has for you. And instead of actually leading to flourishing, they... They're afraid, they hide, they feel shame. Have you eaten of the tree for which I command you not to eat, God says. And then the man says, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and though I ate. And the woman says, it wasn't me, it was the serpent, so you see blame. Okay, what's promised is flourishing, life, no consequences, limitlessness, knowing everything, no consequences. And what they get instead is shame, hiding, fear, and blame. So those lies, the substance of those distortions, actually lead to drastic consequences. Would you turn with me over to Romans chapter 1? I think Paul has this whole story in his mind. I know we read it pretty fast, but let me read through verses 18 to 23 and just listen for the parallels to Genesis 3. Listen to creation and the creator and this idea of what you were told and then you choose 
something different. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What God said, they squish it down. But what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You can't not know that there is a God, he says. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, that last little part there feels really ancient and very bizarre but go back to this idea of the world the flesh and the devil living into a world that has been lied to for a long time that finds symbols and emblems to represent this idea that i'm looking to something other than the creator god to make me okay it's the base of all the ancient religions the way they have idols in their homes to represent different deities that they were looking to different ideas different promises different distortions if i just had this then I would be okay. So they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the creator God who made them in the garden with beauty and flourishing, put them in a space where there was an absence of shame. They exchanged that and they collapsed. It all fell inward. It enfolded in on itself in ways that actually harmed them. And it says that the essence of it was in verse 21 that they didn't honor God or give him thanks. And I love Tim Keller talks about this passage. He says the issue here is not like manners, like when a parent's teaching a child to say thank you when they're given a gift. It's not bad manners that got them into the spot. It's an entitlement. To not honor God as the creator, to say, no, I want to be the creator. And to have the evil one lie and whisper to me that I, I should be in spaces where I don't have limits. And to not give him thanks is to say no thanks. To say, I don't, I don't want that. I, I reject that. I don't actually need what you have. It's a kind of entitlement of the soul that we've been living into that you should know what's best for you. You should be able to determine your future. You should better know what desires to give into. I mean, like, friends, that just sounds so, so funny. It almost sounds silly for me to be standing here saying, hey, that's a distortion because you're going like, that's everybody always only believes that. What are you talking about? And so to hear God's word pierce through kind of the culture that we live in and to say hey, there's something about the lies we believe that have actually brought about deep, deep harm and consequences. So Genesis 3 gives this shame and blame and hiding and fear. Listen to verse 24 of Romans. He says this, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Here's the way it morphs and transitions. So you had a COVID illustration at the beginning. Think about the way the virus has mutated over time so that it lasts longer in the host before it kills it. That's the fascinating thing about a virus, right? It lowers its impact so it can live longer and can spread farther. Here's the way this thing spreads. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart. It started with pushing away from God. So now he gives them what they want to their impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions Here's how it got twisted around. And these are things that now, millennium later, just feel normal to us. But he says this, here's the way it went. Rather than a man and a woman in the garden, in one flesh, honoring God, reflecting back the glory of how he made them, the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, they didn't thank Him or honor Him, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. It doesn't stay contained. It actually morphs. And it goes to the very essence of how they were created. This idea of natural and unnatural, we'll talk a little more about next week as we kind of survey the Scriptures and go, how do you understand these passages? Romans is one of three New Testament texts that speaks of same-sex desire and same-sex action to think through what it means to kind of have that desire in light of the way 
the word created. And the question you have is, where does that come from? What do I do with it? And this text clearly says it's not the way that God designed us. Even though the world, the flesh, and the devil say to us for millennium, this is just normal. This is what you're entitled to. I mean, does God really say you shouldn't eat of the fruit? Does God really say somebody shouldn't be able to engage in the desires of their heart? Did God really say that God could make somebody with certain innate desires and then not allow them to have those things fulfilled? And this text talks about the nature of the way the Creator created us and how as we pushed away from Him, the way He designed things to flourish became distorted. There was a design that got distorted. And many of you may be asking, like, dang, man, why... Why is God homophobic? Why is the Bible homophobic? Why is the church homophobic? Why, why is that the space that gets picked on? I mean, after all, wasn't it a heterosexual couple back in the garden that did their thing? Why, why is Paul picking on this expression? And here's the good news. He's not picking on this expression. It's one of many expressions. The Bible isn't homophobic. It's sinophobic. Not, not xenophobic. Sinophobic. It actually is away from and resistant to and warning you of crying out against anything that would harm you and distort the way God designed things. So let's go back in verse 28 of Romans 1. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Here's the list. Find yourself here. Evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, come on students, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The Bible's not homophobic, it's sinophobic. Talking about any distortion to the way God designed things, wanting to say, I know you believe it for reasons, but can we trace the line all the way back up and realize there's reasons why you don't trust God, that you don't trust His Word, that you doubt His character, that you doubt the consequences of what He says, that you think you're actually entitled to more, that you shouldn't have limits, you should define yourself, your desires should be the ultimate thing in your life. And what the Bible is trying to show us through story and through specific text is the brokenness of that. The distortions run deep, friends, they go all the way back to the garden. And there's a DNA to them. There's a, a substance to these distortions. They, they come from somewhere. And then here's what I love. Every single one of the New Testament texts that talks about same-sex desire and attraction and action all have hope tied around them. So let's finally close with the solution for the distortion. It's Jesus, which I hope it doesn't surprise you. If the idea is truth is rooted in even the winsomeness of the person or whether or not I like them or their behavior, then to think about what Jesus did on our behalf to fix what is broken about us elevates his voice above every other voice. And it's why Paul would say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The good news of the story of God stepping back into the garden of this world to fix what was broken. So it was promised in Genesis 3.15 that there would one day be one that would come from the line of Adam who would crush the head of this serpent. It's foreshadowed even in the way at the end of Genesis 3, which we didn't read, but God makes cloths for them. He has a sacrifice and he clothes them with animal skins. There's a sacrifice so that they can actually be clothed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this story because it's the power of God for salvation. Get this to everyone who believes, to everyone who would believe, regardless of their background, of their story, of how much they've lived into distortions, of how they've been harmed, of their lifestyle, wherever they are, for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The solution to all of our brokenness, this text says, is the one who died in our place, to prove his word could be trusted. He said he was going to come and save us. That his character actually is such that we can trust him. The consequences really were that severe, so he died in our place so that we could be rescued and redeemed. And far from having to define ourselves, he actually gives us a new name, one that's forgiven and set free. He takes us as slaves and he liberates us. Jesus dies in our place 
to free us from the distortions. That is our solution. And in Matthew chapter 4, which is in your reading guide this week, what we see is Jesus, not in a garden, but in the wilderness. The same serpent lying, deceiving, tempting, tricking. And we we referenced it in our prayer time. And instead of caving, what Jesus did was stood in our place, did what we couldn't do to provide a way of salvation that we couldn't earn on our own so you and I could be healed, forgiven, and set free. There's a line of distortion that runs through the world, and Jesus stepped into it, proved himself worthy, died in your place to set you free from everything, everything, everything. The scriptures always take same-sex sin, sexual immorality, and put it next to things like envy, hatred, greed, lying, so that all of us find ourselves in the same boat, needing and being able to have redemption. This is the good news of the gospel, and it's what Genesis 3 is aiming at, showing what God came to the world to solve and to fix. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? I want to stop this time now just to crash land into communion. Communion is the symbol of Jesus doing what he said he was going to do. This gospel story that Paul is not ashamed of is the broken body of Jesus given in our place so we could be redeemed and forgiven. For all those who are trusting Christ, I want to invite you to come. And you can bring all of your distorted desires, all of your questions, all of your your pain, and bring them to Jesus and ask the solution of his broken body and shed blood to speak over all your doubts, your fears, your questions, and your regrets. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd love for you to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. Communion for those who are trusting Jesus. If it's not you, just stay in your seat and pray because God cares about you. He wants to speak to you. He sent his son for you. So you should ask him if that's real, if that's true, uh, if you can move that direction. So I'd encourage you just to pray. If you want someone to pray with you or pray for you, there's people outside this room to the right, if you go out the doors, there's folks there with lanyards on that would love to pray for you for anything. They can meet you there and pray over you. Just come down the aisle when you're ready. Tear a piece of bread off and dip it in the cup. And there's gluten-free here in the middle. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for coming into the world with the truth of who you are to engage us, to heal us, to fix what was broken. Thanks that you came in such a way that you didn't leave us in the distortions you came to make a way for us to be renewed and restored. You have proven yourself trustworthy and beautiful and good, kind and gracious. We ask now that you would stir faith in the room for people to respond to you. We bring you all of our pain, all of our questions, and we ask that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.